Hello and welcome to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. You can find us at greenleft.org.au. I am going to be one of the presenters today, Ari, and I'm joined by... Chloe. Yeah, it's a little different today um, without Jacob, um, but yes. yeah, should should be a good show. We are missing our beloved Jacob, yeah. dear <laughs> listeners, but but we will soldier on regardless. 3CR and Green Left Radio today are broadcast from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Their land was taken by force and sovereignty was never ceded. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and we pledge to continue supporting First Nations-led anti-colonial initiatives. Today we're going to be doing a usual thing, I suppose, in the sense that um, we're going to start with headline news. And we have an interview coming up at 7.50 a.m. with Rehana Mohadeen, a Filipino activist and member of uh, Partito Lakasung Masa. Hopefully I pronounced that right, or the Party of the Laboring Masses. After that, we're going to cover some news from Green Left um, specifically. And then we're going to have an interview with Lionel Bopigay at 7.45 a.m. to talk about... <clears throat> Pardon me to talk about the situation in Sri Lanka uh, and the mass protests going on there. After that, we have the activist calendar, and then we are going to be talking to David Ball at 8.10 a.m. about uh, the Maritime Union of Australia's uh, conflict. (laughs) That's not quite the right (laughs) word. (laughs) Uh, About their... um, they're fighting against uh, Switzer. Yeah, yeah, dispute with Switzer. And then um, after that, we might play some music, and um, that'll basically be it for the show. So, on to headline news. Uh, I think the first thing we want to talk about is all of the refugees have finally been released yes. from the Park Hotel. Yeah, that's <laughs> Chloe, right. Chloe, do you want to talk about this? This is one of your things. <laughs> oh, well, I guess it's, um, yeah, well, it is an issue that, is connected to everybody. Um, mm. But this is, you know, as Ari said, all the refugees have been released from the Park Hotel, not um, not all um, detention centres on and offshore. I think there are about, well, according to um, a few estimates, there are about 10 or so refugees still trapped in detention. But the good news is that um, all the refugees from the Park Hotel prison, um, there are many VAC refugees and um other refugees from Brisbane, Baida, um, and um, other detention centres have been released, and this is this is such great news for you know, especially their families and friends um, who've heard this news. It's it's really wonderful to know that their loved ones have freedom of movement after you know some after nine, ten years of being locked up. Mm. Um, 
It's a yeah. yeah it is a pretty significant victory for yeah. the the refugee movement, and um, but as you said, it is we're not done obviously, no. and um, we <clears throat> excuse me. There are still other detention centers onshore and offshore, like you said, that mm-hmm. still have refugees imprisoned there um, for similar, if not longer, amounts of time for. For no crime, as we know, yeah. just for trying to come to Australia honestly while being brown. So um, the movement isn't finished, but it is definitely still a significant victory that is worth celebrating. Yeah. And especially when we're talking about medevac refugees, these um, people like from the Park Hotel, they were brought here, what, Two years ago, over two years ago. Oh, uh, it's going on three years. Yeah, um, yeah, three years now. Two thousand and nineteen. Yeah, nearly mm. three years ago, supposedly or intendedly, intentionally to receive medical care, which they have not received, and yeah. so now they're free of the prison um, at the Park Hotel. There is finally an opportunity for some of them to receive that medical attention that they have been right. pretty direly in need of in some cases. So. It is still an ongoing struggle, but it is still worth um, celebrating. And in terms of it being an ongoing struggle, there is still the Palm Sunday Freedom and Justice for Refugees rally at 2 p.m. at the State Library, which we encourage people to get to. This is That's this upcoming Sunday, I believe. Yeah, uh, Sunday, State Library at 2 p.m. Yeah, 10th of April, if people like putting stuff in there calendars and whatnot yeah it's, it's quite a broad coalition of different yeah. different groups that will be there so yeah really encourage people to 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 come and support that rally support refugee rights um like you said the fight's not over and um you know the fact that they've all been released on the eve of an election is you know it's very cynical and it really does mm. prove that their detention um and torture was always um arbitrary and it was always a political um you know yeah. decision yeah, and we saw a similar thing recently with the news of the Morrison government agreeing to that deal with uh, New Zealand. Mm, yeah. Same sort of thing. Um, speaking, though, of um, the Morrison government's obvious <laughs> political uh, failures primarily, um, though they did cave eventually, the Morrison government has caved to pressure on yet another issue and agreed to split the flood relief costs with Queensland. Um, the Queensland government had initially proposed, um, I think possibly last week, mm-hmm. um, but they had initially proposed that the federal government pay, uh, 725 million to equal the, the amount that the Queensland government was paying for flood relief. And the Morrison government had just said no, basically. Yeah. <laughs> just flat out said no. <laughs> um, to be fair, well, to be clear, I should say, the Morrison government has come out and said that that's not what they said, but that doesn't mean it's true. That doesn't mean that's not essentially what they said, even if it's not precisely what they said. And they've come out, um, they're quoted in the age as of, what would that be, yesterday, um, saying that, you know, they've already contributed so much to flood relief, whereas this has been an ongoing issue. The federal government just outright refusing to do anything yeah. and then shortly after caving to public pressure. And it's obviously it's better that they cave. It's better that they give money. It's better that they try and support even in this kind of half-hearted sense. But it's 
better for this to have happened than not. But it is yet more examples of the the federal um, coalition government constantly trying to shift responsibility for really Mm. doing anything because their initial statement was to the effect that basically they were saying this isn't our responsibility. You know, this is the responsibility of the states or whatever. Yeah, I mean, this, like, we couldn't, whether it's the federal government or state government, it's really all levels of government should be responsible. Um, it really doesn't make a difference in the end. They can fight about where the money comes from, but in the end, it is ordinary people who are having to pay for all these environmental mm. catastrophes, you know, um, one third, something like one third of billionaires don't pay their taxes. So, yeah. you know, the money is there. And, and these floods in New South Wales and Queensland, it's caused massive damage to several towns and cities. People have died, they've drowned, they've lost their homes. And this cleanup is going to take ages. And, and cleaning up after a flood is heartbreaking and it's hard work and the costs have to be borne by someone. It doesn't matter whether it, I mean, whether it's state or federal, um, to put up the funding. Um, we're the ones that, uh, you know, are going to bear the cost. And this tussle between governments is really theatre, isn't it, for ordinary working people. It's a distraction from real action on climate change. And it's an insult to any, um, you know, it's an insult to us that any government on any level would act like this in response to real um, climate crisis, a real climate crisis uh, unfolding. Yeah, for sure. Though I do think it's still worth, um, making fun of the Morrison government, <laughs> yeah. basically. Yeah, pathetic excuse. Yeah, well, it, you know that says that traditionally yeah. it, fall, it has to fall within the responsibilities of the, and the discretion of local and state governments. You know, it's yeah, it's pathetic. exactly. Pathetic is the right word for it, especially because they keep caving. Is they make <laughs> such a bad impression by saying no. You know, we're going to leave you to fend for yourselves, either whether, whether that's the people or the state. Yeah. And then they immediately have to cave, of course, because that is, as much as they don't want it to be in the Morrison government, that is still the role of government, is yeah. to, uh, theoretically, is to and help governing. people, yeah, government, <laughs> to help people to try and solve these issues. And, of course, we're not really seeing that in terms of an actual solution, like you said. It's not, I don't know if it's quite right to say it's a distraction from climate change in the mm. sense that it is very much a climate-driven emergency. Yeah. But... It is a distraction from the fact that the Morrison government's not taking action on climate change and that their federal budget is cutting funding that they had uh, put into trying to mitigate the effects of climate change or do anything about climate change, which they probably, which they really only put in there because of all of the, um, the climate related talks and stuff from the last year or so. And then now that all of that's over, they don't have to go to it, you know, they're cutting funding on the eve of an election while there are mass floods. And the budget was announced after the flood started as well. So it's not like they didn't know that this was a problem. But it's a similar thing to, I think, what we saw with the the bushfires a few years ago Mm. in that, you know, I don't know if it's changed now, but none of the money that went into that big federal fund to try and help with that, none of that got spent on anything. It's all, it's all this kind of theater that's, they're trying yeah. to look like they're doing any, doing something without ever doing anything. Or I should really, say without ever doing anything that helps ordinary people. That's right. Their, their real interests do lie in propping up the, the fossil fuel industry. I mean, we can see that. I mean, even the state mm. of Queensland, um, Anastasia Palaszczuk, I mean, she's, 
I mean, she's complaining, uh, but I mean, she's reaffirmed her commitment to, you know, Adani, um, mm. the Galilea Basin coal mine, stripped native title rights from, from traditional owners, um, the, the Wagan and, and uh, Jalingo people. She's granted Adani favorable, favorable water deals and, um, you know, she's, you know, her, the Labour government has approved 18 new coal mines. So, mm. I mean, like both state and, and federal government are, you know, we can hold them to account to the to to you know what how they are how how they are treating this this planet and 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 the people that have to live in it. Yeah, and that is it's very much worth mentioning that it's not just the coalition government. It's mm. like we it's necessary to bring them up, obviously, because they're the ones in power in the yeah. um, federally. But the Labor doesn't have that much better policy on. Um, you know, on fossil fuel industries and for the same, for a similar reason, right? Like a lot of fossil fuel, um, lobbies and stuff, they give money to the federal government or to politicians or to pet projects or that sort of thing. That's right. There's as much as, you know, people have been talking about oligarchs, uh, in Russia or whatever. Yeah. It is still very true that we have some version of that in Australia, even if it's not exactly the same. Or, you know, doesn't quite have the same um, cultural baggage, so to speak. Mm. We do still have that sort of thing. And you can see it all the time yeah. with the way that governments respond to certain things. Yeah, you can and, see um, where their priorities lie. It's, it's yeah. with building, you know, it's with fanning the flames of, of war and um, increasing spending on militarism and, you know, not helping people in the floods, fighting over who, who gets to help them. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Or whose job it is, whose responsibility is, you know. It's um, obviously particularly the feds, but it is everybody trying to kind of pawn responsibility off onto each other for these things that really should be government responsibility. It's like, (laughs) what else is the point of government? Yeah, they're making a a huge case for us to, um, you know, not look to them. Um, And and really, they're right, because it, it should be in the hands of ordinary people to make important decisions on... On, on how we um, tackle climate change. Yeah, exactly, yeah. which is why it's necessary to have, you know, even the Greens, but they have some problems in, to, in terms of their approach to uh, renewable fo- renewable industries. But that's why it's important to have <laughs> progressive candidates. Like, you know, the, there are other parties and stuff who are running candidates. Also why it's kind of important to talk about the progressive movements in our local area uh, in a in a broader geographical sense, which is why we have this next interview coming up. Um, so we're just going to play a quick announcement or two while uh, we try and get uh, Rehana on the phone. Stay tuned. Whole we program. jail black males in oh, Australia yeah. nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hand. Lots of changes, 
All right, and we are back. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and we are on the phone with Rehana uh, Mohadin from the Filipino uh, Partito Lakasang Masa, or the Party of the Laboring Masses, a socialist party running an almost full slate of candidates in the upcoming Philippine election, which I believe is scheduled for May 6th. Uh, Rehana, thank you for joining us. For having me on your program. Um, so, Rehana, could you give us a, and our listeners uh, a little overview of the differences between the Australian and Filipino electoral system, just quickly? Um, well, I think it's also important to look at the political context in which uh, the mainline elections are taking place. Uh, we've got a situation where the uh, political clan of the former dictator Ferdinand Marcos who was ousted in, uh, through people's power in 1986, making a bid for power, running for president, in alliance with the Duterte political clan, uh, uh, in, uh, where uh, Sara Duterte, the uh, daughter of the current president, uh, Duterte, is running as his vice president in a bid to maintain their hold on power. Uh, and these, uh, this the alliance of the Marcos's Duterte, which we call the Axis of Evil, represents one of the, the most reactionary, the most right-wing section of the uh, elite in the country. So the political context is important in terms of what it means for uh, mm. Philippine uh, you know, politics. Um, the system, of course, is a presidential system uh, where we have the president directly elected, and then we have a Congress, uh, uh, upper house, which is the Senate, also directly elected nationally, and a lower house, uh, which is um, the, uh, uh, based on congressional districts, but also around 20% on um, proportional representation, supposedly for the marginalized sectors. Uh, and um, But generally, it's... Um, uh, an electoral system that perpetuates uh, elite rule, what we call elite rule, which is a specific form of capitalist rule uh, in uh, uh, the Philippines. Money is absolutely key, uh, which enables electoral fraud that enables the political clans and the dynasties and the oligarchies to stay in power and to continue their hold on power. Uh, vote buying is a, a feature of Philippine elections. The vote buying has already started. It started last year. Uh, and there's even a market rate for, uh, for votes. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and the COMELEC, the Commission on Elections, is stacked with, completely stacked right now, with the Duterte political appointees. And um, uh, some of the biggest contracts for uh, voting machines and voting uh, equipment um, have been given to a company, a company or, uh, run by Duterte cronies. So electoral fraud is a, is a massive issue. It will be a massive issue in these elections. It could trigger a political crisis after May 9. So we have to be prepared not only for the elections, but also to mobilize uh, against electoral fraud, especially if this right-wing faction, the far-right-wing faction, Marcos Duterte, access of evil, uh, manages to rig and win the elections.
Uh, hi, hi, Rohana. This is Chloe here. Um, it's it's our understanding that the PLM, that the Socialist Party, is breaking uh, with something of a tradition, um, running an almost full slate of candidates in this election. Can you tell us about the thought process behind that? Well, it's uh, essentially the uh, assessment was that there was a political vacuum. Uh, because uh, what we call the uh, liberal bourgeois or the liberal wing of the uh, capitalist class in, in politics, which is the Liberal Party, well, <laughs> they were a very weak opposition, uh, and it was very unclear what their electoral plans were. Uh, currently, they're running Lenny Robredo for, for president. Um, but um, So there was a massive political vacuum. We had the right mobilizing uh, in the electoral space, and uh, so we decided that there was a, 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 a real need for a political alternative because uh, the masses are completely disillusioned by uh, neoliberal politics that have destroyed the socioeconomic situation in the country, that have destroyed the lives of the masses. Uh, and there was a crying need for a clear-cut alternative to the system. And so we decided to run. It's the first time in the history of the Philippine left that uh, a political party, uh, in this case uh, PLM, has run for the presidency, and we are running Carl Yodi de Guzman as the president, and it's the first time a worker leader has run for president, uh, and it's the first time that a socialist platform, an explicitly socialist platform, has been presented as an alternative. Um, and we're running Walden Bello, who's a very well-renowned Filipino intellectual, uh, and activists, uh, political activists, uh, on our ticket for vice president. We're running a, a, a full Senate ticket headed by Luke Espiritu, who is the head of uh, our trade union center, the BMP, uh, as Senate, for Senate, along with uh, two environmental activists, David D'Angelo and Roy Carbonegro, for the Senate. We have a guest uh, list of senators as well, which includes people like Risa Hontiveros from Akbayan. And we are contesting the Congress through the party list system, which is a system based on proportional representation for the marginalized, even though that has been completely distorted by uh, front groups of the elite and capitalists, and uh, local positions from mayor to local councillors in several areas. Mm. It's... Definitely good to have um, such a, a broadly, uh, sorry, like so many candidates for a, a left uh, campaign. You know, it's um, good to propose these sorts of alternatives for sure. Uh, PLM's uh, vice presidential candidate, uh, Walden Bellow, who you just mentioned, said in a speech given on uh, February 8th in Manila that um, the PLM does not offer a superficial diagnosis of the cause of our national malaise. Uh, you've already mentioned some things about the, you know, potential of vote rigging, about corruption in the electoral system and that sort of thing. But can you give us a bit more of what the PLM's diagnosis of Philippines' uh, national malaise is? Uh, well, uh, uh, this is a, a central aspect of our uh, uh, electoral platform, and that is to raise these questions and uh, raise awareness uh, of it and put forward sol practical solutions for it. Uh, um, and it's also having a massive political impact. It's having a significant national 
political impact as well. Uh, the media is picking it up, which is also very good. Our basic analysis is that um, it's um, a systemic. Uh, you know, it's not just a question of uh, uh, tinkering with the system here, or it's not a question of uh, who's uh, running this or that department, or uh, um, you know, and so on. But that it is a systemic problem. That it is a problem that um, uh, uh, flows from uh, the specific features of Philippine capitalism, clan uh, uh, and dynasty politics based on a landed oligarchy, which is a capitalist class uh, linked to land. Uh, and so uh, we, we uh, essentially argue that this is a systemic problem. It's a system that's a problem that has to be changed. And we put forward a platform that's uh, aligned with it. And this is getting a hearing. It's having a, a significant national political impact, so much so that um, our candidates, uh, the mainstream media, have assigned journalists to our candidate campaign trail, uh, and they follow our can candidates around. We're on the national news every day on several programs, uh, um, and we can't keep up with the media work. Our communications team is absolutely flat out. Uh, of course, we're under-resourced, uh, um, don't have the money, don't have the resources. We've, hidden well, uh, we've hit well above our weight. Uh, but it was needed, and that's what we're doing. Uh, thanks, thanks, Rahana. Um, so you've, you know, well, I guess what we wanted to ask you is what, if, you know, if things work out, what would does the PLM, PLM propose to do um, if they are elected about, you know, some of these systemic, systemic problems of the Phil, of Philippines capitalism, really, um, that you were just talking about? Well, we put forward uh, uh, an immediate platform of, of demands, um, and uh, uh, it's a sort of something that we would uh, move very fast on, say, in the first 100 days uh, of uh, um, uh, being elected. Uh, we are proposing a wealth tax uh, of the 500 richest families in the Philippines um, to address the pandemic crisis. Uh, up, which includes upgrading the health system and uh, immediately improving the wages and working conditions of health workers um, and uh, upgrading all other basic services. This wealth tax will bring in uh, a trillion pesos, uh, over a trillion pesos, an immediate increase in the minimum wage, which we have already filed in front, front of several wage boards in the Philippines, to 750 pesos a day. Uh, a lowering of the work week with no loss in pay because unemployment uh, under the pandemic is, uh, uh, is um, uh, high. Uh, the implementation of the anti-dynasty law, there's a law that is against dynasties, but it hasn't been implemented uh, uh, because there aren't implementing uh, uh, laws uh, uh, in Congress. So an immediate uh, dismantling of the dynasties by implementing this law the, to abolish manpower agencies that are responsible for subcontracting. We want to get rid of subcontracting completely and regularize work. So the first step is to abolish manpower agencies, stop all coal mining, 
close down all coal mines and implement the Renewable Energy Act, which hasn't been implemented, decriminalize abortion, legalize divorce, and legalize same-sex marriage, demand climate justice of the industrialized countries such as Australia for their historic responsibility for the climate emergency that we face, resume peace talks with the Communist Party of the Philippines and the New People's Army because there's an insurgency in the country due to the systemic uh, problems, a non-aligned foreign policy, especially in the Spratlys and in the South uh, China Sea or the West Philippine Sea, where it's neither the United States nor China, uh, a non-aligned foreign policy based on national sovereignty and internationalism. Um, so these are uh, some of the immediate uh, uh, aspects of our platform that we would uh, move quickly to implement. Hmm. Thanks, Rahana. That kind of makes me want to uh, wish that you could be elected here yeah, as well. Yeah, it's so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Such an impressive platform. So, yeah, thanks Thanks for joining us to tell us about um, all of this stuff. I think it's really useful for um, our audience and people in general to, to know more about, like, what's going on internationally that's not just what we always end up hearing about Europe and the U.S. Like, mm. in a way... Philippine politics should affect us more than Europe or the U.S. You know, you're basically our neighbors, um, but we barely ever hear about it. So it's really good. And um, like I said, it does kind of make me wish that Farida Lakasumasa could um, could be elected here too. But you know, we do our best. Um, is there is there anything that you wanted to add? Any final thoughts? Stuff we didn't get to? Yeah, well, you say the Philippine politics should affect Australia more. Well, mm. Australian politics affects the Philippines more yeah. because the Australian government uh, intervenes in the region and uh, it intervenes militarily in the region. Mm. Uh, we have uh, uh, military agreements with Australia, uh, which are completely to the detriment of the Philippines uh, and undermines Philippine national sovereignty. Mm. Uh, which includes the uh, uh, allowing Australian troops uh, uh, sort of a rotating presence uh, uh, in the, on Philippine soil. Mm. Uh, so we have military agreements that are completely detrimental to uh, the Filipino people. We have Australian mining companies uh, that come in and uh, with absolute impunity uh, destroy the environment and communities mm. uh, uh, in the Philippines as well. Uh, and I know that there are groups in Australia, such as the Earth and so on, who take up these issues uh, and campaign on these issues. Um, and finally, I'd like to uh, say a big thank you, maraming maraming salamat po, sa lahat, to the Filipino-Australian community um, for including uh, our candidates uh, and endorsing our candidates amongst the Australian, Philippine Australian voters. I think there are some 20,000 plus, but every single vote counts. Um, and they have endorsed uh, Luke Espiritu, uh, one of our, uh, our leading Senate candidates. And their how to vote include Luke Espiritu for the Senate. And they have uh, also endorsed uh, uh, Partido La Casa party list for the Congress, as one of the options that they're recommending for the Senate. So thank you very much to the Filipino-Australian community, our friends and uh, networks. Mabuhay and maraming maraming salamat. 
Yeah. Mab- hi, Rahana. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Solidarity and yeah, um, best of luck with the upcoming elections. We'll be keeping a close eye. Yeah, and thanks for joining us again. Um, see ya. Thank you very much. Bye. All right, we were just talking to uh, Rehana from the Party of the Laboring Masses in the Philippines, and she does make a really good point at the mm. end there that, like, you know, as it is really relevant for us to know about politics in our local area, but it is really, I think, important, and I think a lot of people don't know enough about the sort of imperialism that we still have ongoing in the area. I mean, people know about how we've been deflecting refugees to neighboring countries, but mm. that's not quite the same thing. Like people, you know, I didn't know about uh, the mil- about our troops being in the Philippines. Mm. I, you know, our mining corporations being there is not a surprise. No. But yeah, <laughs> but we're, um, we'll just go to uh, a quick announcement, and uh, we'll be back with uh, the Green Left News. So stay with us. CoHealth is a not-for-profit community health organisation providing health and support services in Melbourne. In late 2021, CoHealth facilitated a workshop for women from diverse cultural backgrounds on effective communication skills for social and professional settings. Positive outcomes for workshop participants were collaborative discussions in safe spaces and onward access to support services. To learn more about our services and programs, visit cohealth.org.au. CoHealth is a 3CR supporter. All right. Welcome back to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. So we're just going to go through uh, some news stories in uh, Green Left weekly, um, you know, Green Left News. And you can find all of this stuff on greenleft.org.au, uh, just to be clear. There are, you know, various tabs, various kind of categories of news and stuff where you can look through and you can find these sorts of things, like the the speech that I mentioned earlier from um, uh, Walden Bello, which is a, a article we have um, written well, transcribed from Walden Bellow, written by him um, from February 15th, 2022. Um, just, you know, as, as a, one of many examples of uh, good stuff you can find on our website. Um, so there's some various things. I think we should touch briefly on uh, Viktor Orban has uh, won re-election in uh, Hungary. And Viktor Orban is uh, very far right. <laughs> He's... There's, it's one of those things he's, I've heard him described as a dictator, um, as the last dictator in Europe, which, as far as I know, is, uh, not the, not entirely accurate. They do seem to still have a semi-functional electoral system. Um, you know, like, to, to, again, take an example from the interview we just had with, uh, Rehana Moedin from the Philippines, a lot of what she was talking about in terms of the corruption in the Filipino, um, electoral system and the the way that things work is kind of it's very reflective of the US for example so like one of the things about Orban's success in the election was that it a lot of it comes from um, gerrymandering in uh, rural districts and some city districts and stuff and that's that's not 
that out of line with like what's considered normal electoral practices in the rest of the world. And I just feel like that's worth noting when you hear about, you know, Victor Orban, you know, surprise election win or like wins through shady means or whatever, whatever the reporting may be. It is worth noting that these electoral systems are not actually that they're not actually that strange, really. They're just, you know, we can only judge them when they don't go the way that we want, supposedly. It's sort of the thing um, that I think is sometimes worth mentioning. And uh, Orban has, of course, since being elected, kind of tightened ties with Russia. He's described Zelensky from, um, you know, the Ukrainian president as an enemy of his. He's agreed to buy gas from Russia in rubles, which is... Honestly, that's not quite a thing that I understand in terms of why it matters whether you pay in dollars or rubles, but I think it props up the Russian economy better if it's paid in rubles or something. Slightly unclear on that, but he's kind of broken with the rest of Europe in agreeing to buy uh, oil in, uh, sorry, gas from Russia in uh, rubles. But that's just something to, honestly, something to kind of mention in passing um, before we kind of get on to... Um, Again, not technically headline news because it's uh, the Green Left <laughs> news segment, but uh, I think we wanted to talk a little bit about a uh, new IPCC uh, report repeats call to stop funding and using fossil fuels, which was um, written by uh, Markella, uh, f- what was that, yesterday, day before? Mm, seventh she wrote April. it in the midst of t- torrential yeah. rain in Sydney. <laughs> yeah, she wrote it <laughs> in the floods, and... Um, it's, yeah, one of those things that, um, yeah, it comes back to what we were talking about at the start of uh, the the response to climate change is basically not quite universally, but near universally inadequate from um, the, the the political parties in Australia. Um, they want to keep saying that, you know, these, um, these events, these floodings and, and bushfires are once once in a thousand year event um, and you know I mean they keep they'll, they'll try to blame um, La Nina which is the weather pattern which does often cause major flooding um, but you know um, according to the climate councils a supercharged climate rain bombs flash flooding and destruction report there is an unequivocal link between climate change caused by the burning of fossil fuels and the intense rainfall and flooding but we don't really need to convince our listeners do we of that (laughs) hopefully not no and scientists have been warning for decades as we know about um a hotter earth uh you know the sort of global warming idea that we've had in the past um climate change causing more rain because Mm. higher sea levels less ice the changes wind patterns it increases um moisture in the air increases rain, increases cloud cover, that sort of thing. And so for every degree the Earth warms, apparently, uh, the atmosphere can hold 7% more water, um, and the extra heat in the atmosphere creates more energy that in turn causes these intense rainfalls and storms and extreme weather events. Mm. And um, a a marine heat wave in the East Coast waters uh, has contributed to the recent floods, Uh, Marine heat waves are becoming more prevalent. Last year was the hottest year on record for the world's oceans, and um, higher water temperatures trigger more extreme weather events, like we've just been talking about, that increase higher, that increase rainfall and more, and cause more flooding. It's um, it's not all doom and gloom. 
thankfully. Mm. <laughs> um, the the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, which I am only just learning now what the meaning of that acronym is. <laughs> so, <laughs> now, so used uh, to saying the acronym. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the mitigation, their mitigation of climate change working group um, three. I don't know if that's the third working group or the third report, said on April 4th that it's still possible to limit global warming to uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius, mm. provided we leave fossil fuels in the ground. And that's the thing, right, like we were talking about at the start, mm. the whole thing of um, regardless of how much money gets put into um, gets put into like flood relief, if the governments are still supporting, you know, Adani or still supporting new coal mines or not, not making this transition, this necessary right. transition to actual renewable energy, it doesn't matter really how much money they put into flood relief. If it's just going to be worse again next year or if El Nina ends next year, we're going to have worse fires or whatever, like, or both probably, because that's what usually happens. We have floods and then we have fires and it's, the the longer that we let this state of affairs kind of go on, the the more severe those weather events are going to be. Yeah, how how many times can people rebuild their houses? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Especially when they can't rebuild yeah, their yeah, houses. Yeah, yeah, they can't. <laughs> you know, people still aren't able not, to. Not, we're not actually laughing at the situation, by the it's, way. It's it's just um, no, uh, it's ridiculous. It's, exactly, yeah. it's that kind of upsetting ridiculous, right? That makes you need to laugh to mm-hmm. kind of deal with the stress of it in a way. Because people still haven't been able to rebuild their houses from the fires. That's right. And yeah, yeah, people most likely, I mean, we can have some hope that if the, if Labour gets in or if the Greens get enough people in Senate or whatever, whatever, if we get some kind of more progressive government, we can hope that they'll do better on this sort of stuff. But there's no guarantee, obviously. Yeah, we, we need to think about um, you know Australia's climate movement, um, and also being in solidarity with you know with other countries, um, especially in the global south, who you know would you know are way more like would be more affected um, yeah. by climate change. We've got climate refugees as well, but I mean yeah, exactly. the, the, the climate movement has taken a hit during COVID as well. Mm. We weren't really able to you know go out on the streets, um, but but it is it is being led by students and First Nations people and, and workers and unions and. You know, we've all been demanding the major parties do need to act now. Well, they needed to act years ago, yeah, but yeah. they, but we, like you said, we've still got, we've still got time. Yeah. And, you know, the thing mm. with like this, I think is something that some people can fall victim to a little bit is that mm. the thing of, you know, we should have acted 10 years ago or whatever. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't mean we don't need to act now. That's right. We didn't yeah. act 10 years ago, mm. so we need to act now and we need to act harder now, mm. right? Like, again, Socialist Alliance is the party we're affiliated with, but like, with our um, platform is saying we need to transition to renewables by 2030 at the latest, right? And like, we're seeing that out of some of the rest of the world. I, to be fair, it was a bit in response to the invasion of um, Ukraine, but mm. Germany's vowed to go fully renewable by 2030, which is good, uh, but it is mostly to free themselves from Russian gas and oil, <laughs> which, it's still it's still better than the alternative, right? But um, it's all all these things. It's all down down to political machinations, right? Like we can't rely on uh, Russia or whoever supplies our oil or gas to get into wars all the time, so that we can convince everybody to switch to renewable energies. That's kind of madness. 
But um, if if you you know like our stuff, like our radio show, like our news, you know you can support us. Of mm. course, I, I love how uh, this this article ends. We cannot yeah. wait for Canberra to be submerged before politicians and their love affair with the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, mm. exactly. Though Canberra's yeah. pretty elevated, so it'll be a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which that's what they're relying on, I'm sure. Yeah, they're built. Yeah, yeah, they'll keep. Yeah. But yeah, you can you can support us, and uh, I feel like you should. But I don't, I don't want to tell you what to do with your money. You might not have that much like me. You can go to greenleft.org.au/slash/donate um, to donate to our fighting fund, or you can go to greenleft.org.au/slash/support to subscribe um, to the either the electronic mail or the physical or like just. Give us money because you think we should exist, which we would appreciate. We also think we should exist. <laughs> and uh, But, yes, we're about to go on to our second interview in a moment. Um, so I will play another quick announcement, and then uh, hopefully we will be back shortly with um, somebody good on the line. Stay tuned. Don't go away. We've got our interview coming up with Lionel Bopier. Yep. Back soon. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Hi, my name's Pilar Aguilera and I'm 3CR's chairperson. I'm urging you to become a 3CR subscriber. We need to keep independent, radical, dissenting voices on air. Social change doesn't just happen, we need to nurture it. We desperately need to hear alternative ideas that allow us to organise, build community and change the systems that continue to oppress us and destroy the planet. Put your money where your mouth is. Become a member. Subscribe today. All right. And we are back with uh, Lionel... Bopagay. Uh, Sorry, I'm um, not sure how to <laughs> pronounce that, uh, but yeah. Yeah, I, um, so I'll just introduce you, um, Lionel. So Lionel's a human rights political activist, a one-time central leader of the Sri Lankan People's Liberation Front. And today Lionel lives in Australia and continues to be an outspoken defender of human rights and social justice. And yeah, Lionel joins us now to talk about what's happening in Sri Lanka. So thank you for being on the show, Lionel. You're speaking with me, Chloe, and also Ari. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for giving us the opportunity to speak about the situation in Sri Lanka. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, well, um, Lionel, the, the government of Sri Lanka has now, de- well, they had declared a state of emergency in response to a wave of protests. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, Lionel, there's been, you know, very little um, coverage about this in the mainstream media, even though it's probably the biggest economic crisis in the history of Sri Lanka or known history. Um, and it looks like it's getting worse. Um, so can you please give us a bit of background um, of what led to the protests? Uh, yeah, uh, thank you. Um, 
as you correctly explained, um, the crisis situation is unprecedented uh, in the recent history of Sri Lanka. Um, well, uh, country is almost uh, bankrupt. I, I, I think it is already there. And um, it is due to the result of uh, long-term uh, structural issues uh, that have been uh, prevalent in Sri Lanka for a long, long time. And uh, it is struggling to uh, service its uh, debt. Uh, I think it is ballooning around $51 billion. Uh, and uh, now um, the issue is even now, Still, the, the, the government is going on um, mismanaging uh, the whole situation because uh, the, until recently, the governor of uh, Central Bank was an accountant who didn't have any understanding uh, with regard to economics. And um, I heard that day before yesterday, the government printed uh, 119 billion rupees. Um, now we don't have a finance minister. There was no, there is no uh, um, uh, chief of central bank, and uh, there is no finance secretary. But at the same time, the government is continuing to print and roll out money, and uh, it causes heavy inflation in Sri Lanka. And um, the situation is that uh, the people are facing unprecedented shortages of fuel, uh, food electricity, cooking gas, medication, and they have issues with education. They can't hold exams because they don't have money. I mean, the, the government doesn't have money to buy paper, and uh, there are problems about transport. Several people died uh, while waiting in queues to collect cooking gas. So the crisis has been exaggerating, uh, exacerbating for a, for a long time. It is due to government management, uh, years of... Uh, accumulated borrowing and um, and uh, as soon as this government came to power they uh, gave a tax cut to um, the the biggest companies in Sri Lanka and that created a huge problem uh, economically and financially so that is the situation and because of this uh, scarcity uh, people find it very difficult to survive and that is what led to these protests Thanks, thanks, Lionel. Um, uh, thanks for for giving us a bit of a, a background of what led to the protests. And you know, we've we've been watching um, how people have been protesting in the in the street. Would you be able to just um, you know be able to tell us how big these protests are? You know, how widespread are they? And and you know, what are people demanding? Yeah. Um, now. Um, the, the, uh, it is right across the island, I would say. Uh, now, as you know, there, uh, our population is quite similar to that of Australia. We have about 22 million people. And uh, despite the declaration of emergency, as you stated at the, the very start of this interview, um, the protests have been going everywhere. And I think uh, today, tomorrow, and on the 10th of uh, April, there are going to be huge protests in Sri Lanka. And uh, what happens is that uh, um, there is a sort of an imbalance, I would say, uh, in terms of the spread of the protests because um, the, the, the focus or mainly the protests are concentrated in the south of Sri Lanka and uh, in the north and east. Uh, 
there are uh, uh, protests, but you know, very minor scale. Uh, I think that is not because the Tamil-speaking people are pro Rajapaksa. They are against. They want this government to go, but they are hesitant because of what happened to them. And even now, the North and East is under. Uh, military occupation, like you know, sort of, there are checkpoints, there is military presence, and there are issues have been addressed. There are people are still in prison um, under the uh, Prevention of Terrorism Act. Uh, there are land issues are n- not settled. So all these problems. But the issue is that uh, in Sri Lanka, uh, if you look at the history, there have been three major uprisings in 1971, in 88, 89, and then the 30 war that ended up in 2009. Now, uh, the main uh, point I'm trying to make is because these protests, uprisings, and whatever happened, it happened in only one part of the country. The whole country didn't rise up against the government. And um, one, one part of the, one part of Sri Lanka didn't understand what was going on on the other side of Sri Lanka. And uh, I think unless we overcome that situation, we will be in serious trouble. Uh, uh, probably the, the, the Tamil people understand this situation, and uh, some of the some of the uh, Tamil-speaking people in the plantation sector, uh, what um, whom we identify as Malaya uh, people, they have joined these protests, but they are also very cautious because if the government starts hitting back and if the situation goes the other way, then they will be, the, the, the non-majoritarian communities will be the hardest hit by the repression. So uh, uh, I would say uh, protests will continue. Protests have been peaceful, but the government uh, is trying to make them violent. And uh, if you look at uh, several incidents that happened recently, I mean, uh, if you look at the emergency that was declared by the emergency recently, they had to withdraw emergency, not because they like to withdraw the withdraw the emergency, uh, uh, because of the political pressure that was created by the protest, the, the developing political situation. The, the, the there was uh, some sort of um, uh, some some part of the government. MPs, they move to opposition. But I think that is a ploy employed by the government. Whatever it is, they don't have the two-thirds majority in the government. So they couldn't extend the emergency. They couldn't take up the emergency declaration, which needs to be approved by the parliament. They couldn't get through. They couldn't get it through. So that is why they allowed, the, they, they say they withdrew uh, emergency. Now, the the the, the, the what I'm cautioning is that um, during the uh, the Mirihana protest, you know, where mm-hmm. people surrounded the president's house, yeah. uh, there was a provocation led by, I, I strongly suspect that was military intelligence and um, uh, some of the uh, 53rd Brigade that was um, uh, recalled to Colombo from the North and East. And that was the brigade that committed uh, most human rights in the North and East. And those people were involved in setting up a bus on fire. And uh, uh, and they arrested, I think, about uh, uh, 70 people. And they were tortured. And they were um, some of them were released by courts. But uh, some of them are still in prison. And then 
during the protest uh, in front of the parliament or at the entrance of the, the roads entering the parliament, there were huge protests. And what they did is they sent uh, a number plateless motorcycles to uh, that. Uh, this is army intelligence and some of the paramilitary troops maybe. Uh, they came and the police checked them. I think there was no coordination between the police and uh, and this uh, army intelligence or whatever the uh, the people that were sent to disrupt the uh, protest. Um, uh, so the police, the police who checked are in trouble now, and uh, there are investigations uh, going on to uh, why uh, those uh, cycles were in, exactly inspected, uh, rather than. Uh, Rather than taking the initiative to uh, to uh, investigate why motorcycle number plate less armed uh, people in motorbikes came to that protest, and this is happening everywhere. The 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 situation is that I think at this moment government has infiltrated uh, some of the protest movements uh, with uh, government thugs, uh, government henchmen, uh, saboteurs, and uh, so on. So. Uh, unless the situation is uh, led by uh, proper leadership in Sri Lanka, situation could become a bloodbath. And uh, that is very unfortunate. That will be the fourth bloodbath that would happen in Sri Lanka. Uh, and uh, already United Nations Human Rights Council have warned about this situation. I think uh, probably um, they are aware of the militarization and uh, um, uh, the situation is deteriorating very rapidly in that in that regard. But United Nations Human Rights Council, as we know, they are, they can't they, they can't do anything uh, uh, on the ground to safeguard human rights in, in countries like Sri Lanka. Um, thanks, thanks, Lionel. You've actually given us some, um, yeah. Uh, um, a good answer um, as to what you know how the government has actually responded to these protests. There's been a lot of repression, and I, I was also reading about you know the social media blackout um, um, that you know was really designed to halt another day of anti-government demonstrations and, and also curfews. But you know, I, you know, I can just imagine what it's like you know with the the presence of troops on the streets, and um, you know we've been hearing of things like police firing tear gas and you know, to disperse students. Um, but I think Ari wanted to have, um, ask you a yeah. question as well. Yeah, you've answered a lot of the stuff we were going to ask you, Lionel. It's been really good. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to ask basically what's the, the Sri Lankan left's response been to the situation? What's the left kind of been up to? <laughs> I mean, personally, I don't, I don't like to say this, but I would say it is pathetic. The whole the situation is that the, the protests are led by independent groups, people who have come on their own. And uh, there are protests led by uh, groups like um, uh, uh, NPP, you know, uh, National People's Power, which is more or less uh, an affiliation of the JVP uh, in Sri Lanka. And then there is Frontline Socialist Party. They are also protesting. I'm not saying they are away from these protests. They are staying away. But the problem is they are not coordinated. They are trying to gain their popularity, increase their um, strength through these protests, which is, which is well and good. But the 
moment, the 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 need of the country, the need of the working people, the, we have to bring uh, these protests, coordinate them, bring them together, and uh, make it um, anti-systemic. But it doesn't happen. They doesn't provide any leadership. They they they, they are they have become more uh, more or less onlookers. Uh, of the developing situation, I think, uh, and the, the government uh, will make use of this situation to repress uh, the left and uh, any other opposition that will come up, and um, it will be very unfortunate. So uh, we have been appealing to the to the left leadership, irrespective of who they are, to come forward, uh, 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 coordinate these protests. They should take the leadership of this. At this moment, that is their role, but unfortunately, it doesn't happen. Hmm. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Lionel. Um, uh, I was wondering also if you could tell us um, a bit about what the response of you know just ordinary Sri Lankan people are. Um, you know, not necessarily people on the left, but you know, what what kind of movements um, have been involved? We, you, you and I were speaking about the union movement um, intervention. Um, you know, is is that sort of stronger after the government banned um, strikes by the healthcare workers amid the hospital crisis? Yeah, uh, well, um, um, from the working people's point of view, there have been many protests going on even before this uh, crisis started. You know, sort of the the, the current uh, current uh, protests. Um, there was a teacher strike. There were peasant uh, people, uh, the, the, the agricultural workers on strike. There were teachers on strike. There were students on strike. But the union movement has been very hesitant to come to the scene. I think it has become more uh, wage-centered uh, in the sense you know they are asking for more wages, more facilities, which is well, well and good. But uh, I think at this moment, the union movement's uh, involvement doesn't seem to be sufficient. I think um, what I heard is, I, I don't know exactly what happened. Yesterday, there was some sort of uh, discussion. Um, uh, it was organized, uh, it, was, it was coordinated by some independent uh, union rather than affiliated with any party. I think uh, the, uh, the JVP trade union uh, was a part of that discussion. I hope something will work out because now the situation in Sri Lanka is that protests continue, protests will uh, gain momentum for the next week or so, and uh, uh, the government will try to turn the situation around because the government expects that uh, because it is coming to the rainy season and that um, the hydro uh, uh, the reservoirs will become full, so they will be able to uh, provide electricity uh, on a more consistent basis. And then they are negotiating a loan from the IMF or whatever the facilities they could provide, and they expect and they have appointed. Uh, uh, team of uh, experts, uh, economic experts. Um, I have high regard for these experts because some of them have been in the progressive camp, but I don't know what they are going to do here um, in, in this situation because you know, sort of, it has been the uh, the, uh, the 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 governor system that has brought up this situation, the the the, the situation to this um, crisis, and. Um, now, uh, uh, Indrajit Kumaraswamy and one of the Sri Lankan experts uh, who 
was here in Melbourne, Dr. Nandalal Veerasinghe, he is appointed as the head of the central bank. And the Professor Devarajan, a former World Bank expert, he has been uh, called, and Dr. Uh, Indrajit Kumaraswamy, he is also an expert. He was part of the mm-hmm. uh, sort of a progressive uh, people. You know, so the, they have been invited, and they are working on uh, some sort of a package. I don't know what, but the issue is, are they going to turn around? The government is expecting things will turn around at the end of um, maybe in two weeks, um, at the end of this month. And if, when that situation comes, government will start hitting back. Mm. And uh, that will be a massive repression That's and right. that will be unprecedented, I would say, in terms of uh, the scale of repression. Well, well, thank you so much, um, Lionel. We just want to, you know, um, wrap up this interview, but it, you've given us, a, you know, a very good overview of, of you know, the terrible situation um, that's happening in Sri Lanka. Um, is there anything um, that you'd like to, to say, um, any concluding comments that you'd like to make? You know, if, you know tell us if the, you know of any solidarity actions that are happening that, you know, if people would like to support. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think uh, during the last week, uh, weekend especially, there were protests in, uh, uh, expressed by the people. Uh, the, I, I would like to point out that most of these people who have been taking part in these protests have been the supporters of the government during the 2009 election. Yes, yes. right. And Pro. and uh, there were uh, 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 strong protests, I would say, in Melbourne, in uh, Perth. And uh, I think uh, this weekend uh, there is going to be protests in Sydney and so on. And we had uh, a virtual uh, global solidarity rally, uh, which was attended by about 300 participants uh, from all over the globe, uh, which was very very effective, I would say. And... uh, uh, there, con- uh, there will be solidarity action um, continuing, and we are hoping that uh, the 17th, uh, 21st, that between, because 21st, I would like to remind that was the Easter bombings um, uh, mm-hmm. anniversary. You know, it is the third, I think, from 2019. No, it is. Uh, it is coming to the fourth year, yeah. and um, there nothing has happened. So there will be some uh, protest action taking place at the moment. Uh, they have. Uh, the people uh, who are supporting, uh, so expressing solidarity with the people who have been victims of these Easter bombings, they have organized something in a church, but uh, we want to organize uh, an open protest. So uh, there will be some sort of solidarity action that will be taking place in Sri Lanka, and already it is happening all over the globe, wherever the Sri Lankans are, I would say. Mm. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, Lionel, for coming on the show and telling us all about this sort of stuff. I think it's okay. always... Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah. And uh, we appreciate your uh, solidarity. We'll be keeping in touch and we'll be keeping our readers and, and listeners informed um, mm. of, about what's happening in Sri Lanka. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. See ya. Uh, thanks, Lionel. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, we were just talking to... Lionel, uh, Lionel Bopigay, who's a, a human rights political activist, um, and he was talking about the crisis happening in Sri Lanka where people are protesting as they face severe food shortages and, and fuel and other essentials. Yeah, and um, we uh, ran over time, which uh, is <laughs> oh, fine because it, it was great. Yeah. yeah, it was a great interview. So uh, we might uh, just 
quickly smash through the uh, Green Left Activist calendar. And a uh, reminder that I always try and get in is you can go to greenleft.org.au slash events to find some of this stuff. There's filters by area, by date, that sort of stuff. Um, so we might just blow through this really quickly uh, because we have another interview coming up in like two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so first thing, uh, from broadly speaking, from today, April 8th, to uh, Saturday, April 16th, we have Hell Childs, Dolly, the Blow Up Love Doll, and um, the Dicks of Doom for the Comedy Festival, which um, <laughs> that's certainly a title. <laughs> um, the main gigs, uh, 9th of April, uh, 6 to 8 p.m., the Flaming Ukulele Cabaret at the New International Bookshop, Trades Hall, uh, 8th of April, today, uh, 10th of April, and 16th of April, 6.45 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. Uh, for the Melbourne Comedy Festival. And you can find tickets at melbournecomedyfestival.com.au if you look up Hell Child, H-E-L Child. No space there. Um, we have on Sunday, April 10th, we've already mentioned it, the Palm Sunday Walk for Justice for Refugees uh, at the State Library starting at 2 p.m. Um, and we have uh, another comedy show, Irrational Fear, 5 p.m., the Forum at um, Flinders Street, uh, sorry, 154 Flinders Street City. Um, we have on Thursday, April 21st, forum on the U.S.-Australia Alliance, why we should oppose militarism and war, uh, 6.30 p.m., or f- with dinner at 6 at 407 Swanson Street, uh, Level 5, the Resistance Book Center, Resistance Center and Bookshop. Um, and I think we're still probably hosting these things also partially on Zoom, so... Again, check yeah. events, look for the Zoom link if you can't make it in person, make it in person if you can. I don't really do in-person events anymore because of uh, <laughs> reasons, brain reasons. Uh, Wednesday, April 27th, we have uh, music uh, Musicians for Freedom, 7.30 p.m. Brunswick Ballroom, uh, 314 Sydney Road, Brunswick. Uh, Thursday, 20, April 28th, International Workers Memorial Day, 10.30 a.m. at Memorial Rock, corner of Lycon and Victoria Street in Carlton. And April 29th, Friday, we have film, stre- film screening, Green is the New Black, 7.30 Palace Cinemas. Um, you can check out the Facebook. There's, again, greenleft.org.au slash events. And uh, you can filter by date, by location, all that sort of good stuff. And we're going to qu- play a quick announcement while we uh, hardly call <laughs> David Ball for the next interview. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and stick around. Uh, let's find an announcement. Oh, whoops. <laughs> Sorry. Hi, I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life and 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe, the number is 94198377. You've been listening to the same. You could never understand. Feel the fortune flowing. You know it isn't stuck.
Hi, and uh, welcome back to Green Left Radio. And we have with us um, David Ball um, from the Maritime Union of Australia, the MUA. Um, he's the Victorian Branch Deputy Secretary. Um, just to give us a breakdown on this um, ongoing Switzer dispute. Welcome, David, to the show. Thanks, welcome Harry. back. <laughs> no worries. Thank you. Um, so... Um, David, we've been keeping a, an eye on these EBA negotiations. It's been going for a while now. Um, and, you know, we've joined in some of the protests you organised. But for listeners who might not be aware, can you please um, start off with an overview of, you know, who Switzer is and um, how this dispute actually started? Sure. It's an EA negotiation. It's been going on for over two years. Um FITSA are owned by Maersk Shipping, which is one of the biggest shipping companies in the world. They operate in around 35 countries around the world. But the Australian operation is very important to the, I guess, the business portfolio because it produces over 50% of their revenue. So we're a big part of their operation. Um, and unfortunately, well, COVID played a big role in the breakdown of the negotiations. We were uh, a fair way down the path of getting an agreement when everything closed up and we had to uh, cease negotiations. And that's when Spitzer turned nasty. Um, they put 30 new claims on the, on the table. We called them the dirty 30. And uh, from there, negotiations just broke down. I guess the other thing I'd just like to mention that's important for people to understand is that on a tugboat, there's three people. One's a skipper, one's an engineer, and one's a, a, an IR or a deckhand. And the IR is our member, the engineer belongs to the AMP Institute and the skipper belongs to the Masters, um, the AMOU. So it's an extremely complex negotiation with three different unions sitting at the table and all the three different unions have um, different issues that they're grappling with. Given that, that kind of complicated thing, are there any of the union's issues contradictory, though? Um what sort of uh, what sort of stuff does everybody want that Spitz is refusing to? Yeah, well, the, at the moment the rostering arrangements are something that all three unions are dealing with, and at the moment there's a minimum of a ten hour break here in Melbourne between shifts, and Spitz are trying to reduce that to six hours, Oof. which you know, yeah, is uh, as you'd imagine, uh, pretty difficult to deal with, and yeah. has massive fatigue issues behind it. But um, you know, the engineers are responsible for the maintenance on the vessel, so they're, they're in dispute regarding when maintenance should be done. Spitzer, again, want maintenance to be, to be done you know, t- um, for the entire shift. So you're on a 12-hour night shift, they want you out doing maintenance, which is just unrealistic because these guys work seven 12-hour shifts in a row, and that could be seven 12-hour night shifts. And, you know, that's just... You can't be working the whole time. You need to be able to get some rest during mm. that period. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And given that tugboat operation is, is not an easy jo- job, it's kind of high risk and it is specialised, especially talking about engineering and stuff, but just all of it is pretty specialised. The idea of trying to reduce the amount of rest that people can have seems... Like absolute madness. <laughs> and cutting, what was it, 65% of the wages? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's bizarre and it's it's um, just corporate greed and mm. um, a lack of understanding 
of what the workers actually do. And that's, that's a big problem with these negotiations. During the two-year period, Spitzer have um, removed four or five of their leading negotiators, and they were the people, well, the first couple were the ones that actually understood the towage industry. We now find ourselves sitting at the table with lawyers who have no, under, no understanding of the industry and are just arguing from a legal perspective and from a, a financial perspective. So that's made it really difficult. Mm. And you'd think that this sort of, you know, like you said, corporate greed, but you'd think that stuff like if you have increased uh, risk of accidents, injuries, that sort of thing, uh, from, you know, trying to reduce the amount of sleep people can get or try to get them to work 12 solid hours. You'd think that that would be bad for their bottom line as well. Is that, aren't they sort of, there. yeah, aren't they sort of shooting themselves in the foot a little bit with that sort of thing? Yeah, companies uh, are reactionary and they, you know, they, they take risks with people's safety and um, I guess pay the consequences down the path when it does fall to pieces. Hmm. Yeah, and um, uh, Dave, how Im- you know how important is it for the MUA to win this campaign? I mean, what would be some of the? Co- I mean, we do, we we are hoping that you'll win, and you most likely will, hopefully. But what are some of the consequences of letting this you know grubby company win? Yeah, well, there's a there's a couple of different sides to that. One, I guess, the big one, and that, and this is for all workers across Australia, is that Fitcher have applied to Fair Work Australia to have the agreement torn up and to go back to the award. So that's like 20, 30 years of, you know, bargaining over EBAs and increase, improving conditions. And it's not only just for the workers, it's also for the company around flexibilities with rostering arrangements. Um, if, if that happens, then it just sort of gives a green light to other companies to do that. We know Qantas have applied to tear up their agreement. Patrick's also did, but they backed out of it. We managed to get an agreement with Patrick's. So it's sort of... Uh, there's that angle there, but there's also, um, with, a, with the six-hour breaks, you know, we, we don't want to introduce that anywhere. And also, in towage, there are a couple of uh, companies practising different type of employment arrangements where they have a partnership or a cooperative workplace agreement with their workers. So it removes liability by the company and the, and the three workers who are on the tug um, end up having to get public liability insurance, and they basically it's a sham contracting arrangement. So we're really fighting against that too. Hmm. Um, we're running slightly low on time, so we might uh, skip. Do you have any uh, anything that you want to add? Any stuff that we haven't covered so yeah, far? Yeah, I'd just like to uh, I'd just like to call out to all the uh, unions around Victoria, around Australia, and also you guys, the socialists, to continue to come to our rallies and support us on this issue. You know, it was fantastic uh, last week when the, the global CEO came out to Australia and he, he refused to meet with the workers or the negotiating team and we had 200 angry unions standing out the front of his gates and he didn't get to go on his little cruise up the river. And so a big mm-hmm. thank you to all the unions and all the socialists who, who continue to support us. Yeah, solidarity. Well, yeah. Um, and, yeah. and in that case, can you? Are there any upcoming actions that people should be aware of? Um, not at the mo- not at the moment. We've actually got them back to the table. So there's mm. three days of meetings taking place next week. So hopefully we'll get some progress there. Coming into a federal election, we really don't want to become the target of the Liberal government and yeah. take protected action. And so we're uh, we're just holding back and 
waiting yeah. to see what happens. We, we do want a negotiated outcome anyway, but yeah, yeah. we'll see what happens. Yeah, fair. Well, we'll make sure to keep everybody yeah. updated, you know, via the radio and our newspaper and stuff about actions that are upcoming or that sort of thing. But, yeah, thanks uh, very much for your time, David. Thanks, thanks no. David. Solidarity thanks. to you, the MUN, and all those tugboaters whose jobs are under threat. Yeah, for sure. Good, Good on you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks. All right, see ya. Bye. All right, uh, we were just take, talking to David Ball from the MUA um, about... Sorry, Chloe's pointing at things in the studio <laughs> and distracting me. <laughs> sorry, we were just talking to, yeah, David Ball from the MUA about their dispute with uh, Switzer. And um, <clears throat> that was good. <laughs> it's one of those... It's one of the things yeah. that we have to talk about a lot on this show, right, is yeah. this sort of absolutely mad corporate greed, right? Like... Talking about, you know, trying to reduce the minimum break between shifts from 10 hours to six hours, like say, you know, most people have to commute, right? And even if you live close to the docks or whatever, even if you live close to your workplace, you don't want to like just, I don't know, have to take sleeping pills immediately when you get home just to try and get any sleep, right? Like, it's that's so sort of dangerous, and they, yeah. I mean, these are high-risk jobs. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, they, it's they're like you have to get licensed to to become like to work um, in these in these jobs in these in, like as a tugboat operator. Um, it's not easy, and yeah, they're they're at risk. They're risking their safety at work. Um, yeah. So it's just they deserve better pay, job stability, and safety on the job. And um, exactly. yes, we're in solidarity with. Um, them fighting for those because yeah. a, a lot of the wins, like David Ball said, are being dismantled. 30 years of, of fighting mm. for those rights are just being taken away. Um, yeah, and like it's it's one of the things that does happen, that has been happening more and more, it seems like, mm. these sorts of EBAs trying to be dismantled or like working conditions being rolled back. Like I remember there being um, a bit of an uproar and I think protests, like back when uh, Metro, when they took over the trains, they tried to reduce the amount of maintenance needed on uh, that they did on trains. They tried to reduce the safety conditions again. And, like, all of these things are specialized, like, dangerous jobs. You need yeah. the, the, the highest workplace safety, not just for yourself, like, especially in the case of trains. <laughs> it's not just for the, the operators, for the workers who have to drive them have to maintain them that sort of thing it's for people in general the sa- general safety of stuff and like when we talk about uh shipping tugging um <laughs> a tugboat that sort of when you talk about a uh, dock working all of this sort of stuff like supply chain issues have been this massive problem throughout the pandemic and are continuing to be a problem now for various you know various reasons around the place and trying to make the dock workers trying to pay dock workers less trying to make them less safe when we we still need them like obviously just in general it's bad regardless of how important economically the job is this sort of stuff that spitz is trying to do is shit like we shouldn't let them get away yeah with it, we regardless. Have, they haven't gotten away with it yet but you know yeah. they have already gotten away with sacking like over 800 people in england yeah. via via email yeah by the way. of course <laughs> like it's just it's, yeah it's horrific yeah but mm. it's and, the, and the, the thing that they've really made so much profit as well 190 yeah. billion us dollars in profit yeah exactly sit and, on yeah and you see that all the time right it's like 
the question of, yeah, why people roll back wages, why people roll back safety regulations, why people, you know, do these mass firings, but then force their remaining workers to take on all this extra load because, like, they couldn't actually, they needed all those workers, but it's just this ongoing effort by these companies, like David was saying, like we're talking about, it's this ongoing effort to just make more money, regardless of how, regardless of the impact it has on other people, just make more money, more money, more money, more money. And that's the, that's the thing, right? Like, we're socialists here. Yeah. That's the thing, is that we have to understand that really capitalism is unmaintainable for so many reasons. Mm. You know, we have this ever-growing problem of unemployment, and especially... And like, also the casualization of yeah, our workforce. I mean, companies like... For sure. Underemployment, yeah. but co- companies like Svitza are, you know, using labor hire and, and, and casualized jobs to, to get rid of full-time workers yeah. and all their benefits that come with full-time work. So it's really important that, you know, we, we do... Um, demand to stop these labor hire companies from spreading and yeah. you know it, it is it is a, like there's a lot so much damage being done to to workers being replaced by labor hire it's a huge problem yeah, yeah. and like casualization mm. in general has been such a huge <laughs> we should problem have kept david and- on <laughs> we, we let david go a bit too yeah, early yeah yeah <laughs> Um, and yeah, casualization is a huge problem in general in the yeah. workforce and we've really really seen that through covid and yet federal government's not going to do anything about it. Yeah, they're going to fight for it. Yeah, mm. exactly. And if anything, they're going to try and make the problem worse. And we do need yeah. to fight for it, of course. Like, we need to join actions like um, supporting the MUA when they have actions. We need to join as many of these sorts of protests as you kind of have the emotional fortitude to get to, right? <laughs> like, there's there can be a problem with burnout. There can be problems with that sort of stuff, trying to get to everything all the time. But, like... You know, as much as you're able, and I think we are it's, dealing with you yeah. know, years and years of um, neoliberalism. So we, you know, yeah, exactly. And with the kind of, it does often feel like the ongoing struggle is to stop things continuing to get worse, That's right? right? And we kind yeah. of, we always want to get to a point where, like, you know. We're fighting to make things better. And, like, we do see that. That's why it's really worth celebrating that all of the refugees are out of um, the Park Hotel. Yeah. Like, as much as there's still an ongoing problem it with treatment of refugees. It shows the movement is working. Exactly. We are, we are yeah. succeeding in putting pressure on on governments, um, you know, on, on, on bosses, on unions, on, yeah, we yeah, are. Yeah, exactly. And it's like part of the reason why I, you know, mentioned capitalism is unmaintainable. Mm. And it does tie back to all these things, you know, like the capitalist class wants people divided. It wants to vilify refugees, for example. It wants to vilify Muslims, for example. Mm. It wants to vilify basically everyone it can vilify to keep the working class divided. You know, it wants to make life just drastically less safe, less livable. For all sorts of people, you know, and like talking about these sorts of really specialized dangerous jobs like tugboat operation, like train driving, like whatever. Mm. It wants to make all of these things worse to make more profit. And that's the thing that is at the core of capitalism that we always need to remember, I think, is the profit motive. Mm. Because we can talk about, you know, like the Greens do from time to time. We can talk about, say, like a market led um, renewable energy push or whatever. Mm. But you have to remember that, like, all these, a lot of these companies, energy companies, you know, mining companies, all of these companies, they have explicitly budgeted, uh, they have explicit budgets for getting fines 
for not holding up their end of things. So you can regulate as it's much as you want. It's a drop in the ocean. Yeah, exactly. You can, it's not even, it's yeah. more of a symbolic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so like you can regulate as much as you want, but mm-hmm. as long as you're not like dismantling companies, putting people in jail for doing these things, as long as it's fines, all these companies are fine. Right. And <laughs> they're fine with fines. Yeah. They're, they're <laughs> fine with fines. And it's that, that whole thing is, I think, really important to keep in mind all the time is that like these companies, they only want profit and they don't care about killing us all to get it. Yeah. That's the thing is like the climate change is unsolvable under capitalism because regardless of how green we make everything, you know, if, it's like the the push for nuclear energy, for example. That's a lot less of a carbon footprint than um, other fossil fuel industries, but it's still a f- you're still poisoning the world. And like this, the nuclear waste that you get, the waste you get from nuclear reactors, that needs to go somewhere. Mm. And you can people can be like, oh yeah, we'll put it in a concrete box underground that'll be safe for however long. But like, what if it's not? What if that company goes under? What if the box cracks? After like a thousand years, and that that's the waste of there is still and just come up under a different name, really, and just yeah. continue to operate exactly. <laughs> and they could do it as dodgily as they want because, mm-hmm. oh, what are you gonna do? Find us? Yeah, that's in our budget. Yeah, we did this because we knew you were gonna find us, and that's an acceptable payoff. That's right. <laughs> it's and yeah, but we're hitting the end of the show. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed it. We did have a packed um, yeah. program today, with, so with thanks for sticking stuff. around. Yeah, good uh, interviews, good people. Thanks for listening, everyone. Go to greenleft.org.au to find more news, to find events, to support us if you want, all that good stuff. Until next time, um, end capitalism, if possible. <laughs> Bye. Bye, listeners. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at buy-alliance.org, email info at buy-alliance.org, or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm bisexual.